3: I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Koski.
1: Scott Tobias, Keith
3: Phipps. In our last episode, we looked at the unsettling illness metaphor of Todd Haynes' safe and the many different ways it can be read today. The film's chilly Kubrickian visuals and thoughts on the connection between mental and physical illness make it an excellent match for Carlo Mirabella Davis's newly released debut film Swallow, starring Haley Bennett as Hunter, the wife of a rich man whose expectations for a photo-perfect spouse managing a photoperfect household are stymied when Hunter starts obsessively eating small household objects. Her condition is called PICA, and it's a real-world syndrome where sufferers feel compelled to eat non-food items ranging from their own hair to dirt, stones, sharp objects, or even less healthful things. The causes and treatments vary, but for Hunter, the disorder seems to stem specifically from a need to control her own body. And when she finds out she's pregnant and her husband and in-laws try to seize control of her body, the problem escalates sharply. Swallow has been billed as a thriller or a horror movie, and it has elements of both, with a wide-eyed protagonist initially fighting a nearly silent battle against her surroundings, which initially looks like a fight against her own body. But gradually, as the story develops, and we get to overtly see the sources of the pressures she was only feeling subliminally, it turns out she's fighting external pressures more than the internal ones. We'll be back to discuss Swallow after this.
0: How does it make you feel, when you
2: swallow something? I just, like the textures in my mouth. Textures in my mouth. It made me feel, in control, In control. Uh, I'm right here. I just wanted to make you happy. You get back here with my kid!
3: I did something unexpected today. So what did you all make of Swallow?
0: Um, It was hard to swallow. No. I
3: I see what you did there. Um, I liked
0: it. I I felt like there's a lot of elements to this I really liked. And certainly the the safe influence is is very strong and it's formally quite impressive. I'm just not sure that I bought – the transformation of the main character. It's good as been as performance is and she's very good throughout, but I'm not sure I bought, you know, this was the same character at the end as we saw at the beginning. You know, I just don't know. The psychology seemed a little too neat for me. But I don't know. I, I it's stuck with me. I think it's definitely worth seeing.
2: I think the the neatness is what stuck out to me and More than usual when we do a pairing, I feel like my opinion of this film was really colored by the other film in the pairing. I watched this second after rewatching Safe and the connections are many and we and we will get into them but like a big point of contrast is that this is a pretty non-ambiguous film like there's definitely Mm -hmm. some mystery around it at the beginning but there's a very sort of a to b progression in terms of the the psychology and the causes behind Hunter's Syndrome, and it is concluded in a very straightforward manner. And I have to say, I didn't mind that after having watched a film as slippery as safe and kind of living in that ambiguous space. It was kind of satisfying to have this very straightforward approach to this kind of story um that does have that that sense of payoff that you don't really get with safe so and it is filmed really well and uh haley bennett gives a really good performance and is a, just a very arresting presence to to look at very uh jennifer lawrence vibes <laughs> about her and then this film uh, i i think but you know as far as did i like it yeah i i, I liked it fine i don't think It's necessarily a film that's going to stick with me for years and years, but sort of as a pairing with Safe, like as an experience watching these two films together, it did sort of form a nice duo in terms of like the different ways you can tell a similar story.
1: Yeah, I think I had a similar reaction. I really like this film a lot right up until I felt like everything had just been explained and there was no mystery left. I mean, this was sort of the ultimate example of uh, a piece that Noel wrote for us at the Dissolve called Ban the Backstory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and the backstory here, when it's revealed, there is a payoff. There is a scene towards the end that is quite powerful, but at the expense of really answering too many of the questions that it should have maybe even left open i mean you know i mean safe was a tough one for this film to be compared against because safe is so ambiguous and you really do feel like it's giving the viewer so much space to think about what's going on and i think swallow interprets itself too much and leaves so little for us but I was completely gripped by it from mm-hmm. the start. Gripping is a good do- word. Thank you. It's yeah. a gripping I mean, it's, film. <laughs> it's, it's really stylish and, mm-hmm. and tight and extremely well acted. It made me want to see this filmmaker continue to work. I think maybe I liked it more than either Keith or Genevieve, but it did kind of let me down a little bit in the end.
0: I, it had that Antichrist vibe, too, where it, where it's like I really don't want to look at this like i want to watch this movie i'm enjoying watching this movie but i don't actually want to look at these images or (laughs) follow the scene through to its conclusion
3: or potentially just be around these people. I mean, mm, I can yeah. I can certainly see that. I saw this movie at Fantastic Fest last year, and Fantastic Fest is an Austin cult cinema festival that uh, tends to rely pretty heavily on gore and oddities, like extreme cinema. There's a lot of horror, a lot of genre, science fiction sort of stuff. And initially, this just did not seem to fit into them. The description that I would use for the cinematography is immaculate. It's mm-hmm. just it's very precise. It's, it's intensely vividly colorful and it just didn't feel like it should be sharing the same screen with a lot of these like lovingly but but sometimes a little sloppily made exercises in genre until you get deeper and deeper into it and you start feeling the degree to which the emotions are are familiar from exploitation and extreme cinema. Mm I really enjoyed it as an exploration in those types of emotions done with a completely different visual style for this kind of story. I agree that it's kind of simplistic. Emotionally, it's putting some very simple, like good guy, bad guy, woman, good man, bad kind of stuff into a much more like complicated framework, a complicated disease, complicated story, complicated emotions, because I think the audience is meant to some degree to be repulsed by Hunter's consumption of all of these weird things. And particularly given the film's focus on these things, like passing through her body and the fact that she has to like literally pass all of them or end up in the hospital because she can't. So uh, yeah, I had, I had mixed feelings about it throughout just, well, the the constant focus on w- when is she going to poop and what, what's it going to be like when she does was <laughs> something I don't necessarily need in the cinema, but wow. I, Eternal questions. The, <laughs> I I have to disagree a little bit the the ending because that final shot left me just stunned, just mm. like floored, like literally sitting in a theater crying because i was so taken by the simplicity of the image of this bathroom and just all of these women coming in and out of it and the the fundamental implication that every single one of them has a similar story yeah. on some level that everything we've just seen in the film is a a small personal fight that in some way is playing out over and over and over in very different ways possibly in the lives of every woman in that bathroom it's such a simple shot it would be so easy to ignore but the implications of it just floored me. Like, I, I felt like I was watching a pilot. I felt like I was watching the first chapter of an amazing anthology. And the fact that you don't even need to see the rest of it, you can just kind of imagine It's just an, an act of encouraged imagination that I absolutely loved about this movie.
2: Yeah, I definitely agree on the final shot of being really just interesting and thought provoking in the, in the ways you talk about. I think when I talk about the ending, I mean, well, her her aborting her, her baby, you know, and it really makes it very clear that this condition is explicitly tied to the child she is carrying, and that it is over once that child is gone. So it's sort of the simplicity of how this stage of her life is brought to a conclusion in that one regard. But it's also really enticing of like where she goes from here. So I think it just in terms of like the narrative of the movie of this like 90 minutes that we've spent with her, I am minorly resistant to how cut and dry it is in that moment when she does the uh, the medical abortion. She swallows a pill, you know, it's, it's kind of ties it up in a bow. But that shot that follows it of the women coming into the bathroom sort of like opens the film back up
3: yeah and to me to some degree it it makes the patness of the rest of the story feel better Mm -hmm. because there's sort of an implication that again we're only kind of getting a slice of a much larger story the pro-choice elements of the film the the degree to which this is a movie about a woman who needs to take control of her own body and has to do it in very destructive ways until she finds another way to do it it's pretty simplistic and i can i can definitely see this being a movie that makes a lot of people angry it's provocative in a lot of ways not just challenging people's like political beliefs and and ethical moral beliefs but in terms of kind of like challenging their ability to no pun intended stomach some of the things that are going on on screen i think that pun was intended tasha okay (laughs) fine that pun was intended you call me (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean it's provocative, and I, I did. I, I the part of it that really got me was just the investment everyone has in her once once she does become pregnant, and because these other behaviors are so confounding and estranging and repulsive to her husband and to her in laws, they still stick with her, and you get such a strong sense that they are sticking with her because she has this. Thing that they value, <laughs> and it's not not her. It's the thing that is in her body that they are trying to possess, and it's kind of a a um even in a a planned pregnancy, even a pregnancy that, that people want, there is still that sense of investment that can be discomforting from everyone within a, a family. So many expectations and so many you know hopes and dreams that are tied to uh, this thing that does not exist yet, and um. The film does a good job of communicating how much pressure that is and how difficult that can be.
3: Even before the idea of them valuing her for what her body contains rather than valuing her for herself, there's a very similar feeling around the way they value the marriage, the way they want to preserve the image of the marriage, her behavior in the marriage. The household is so decorous and overplanned, her behavior in it is so 50s and archetypal and, and predictable in a way.
2: Vacuuming in heels! That <sighs> oh, vacuuming <laughs> in heels.
3: The, the, um,
1: Can I the, put a flower bed out?
3: <laughs> the immediate sense there is just the kind of feeling that this image matters more than anything else. And when she starts disrupting it, it doesn't feel like they're trying to protect her. It feels like they're trying to protect this image and this idea, this ideal of this picture-perfect marriage that she and her husband have.
2: I think it's also interesting the scene early in the film where her mother-in-law, played by Elizabeth Marvel, brings her uh, a self-help book and tells her it really helped with the postpartum for her. And just the acknowledgment that there is further pain and suffering coming like it's not even like if you have postpartum it's like it's going to happen for you it feels like a tacit acknowledgment that she is going to suffer for the sake of her place in this family and for the sake of bringing this child in this family and that's just how it's going to be because that is the role that she has in this family
3: yeah there's a lot of uh like Ugliness in this movie, but it's like a very bright, quiet, intense ugliness that reminds me a lot of, of Stanley Kubrick. It has the sense of oppressiveness, like the ominous weight of a, a Kubrick movie, and it has sort of like the visual sharpness. Of a Kubrick movie, but maybe not not the not the sense of significance certainly. But it also reminds me a lot of Douglas Sirk's sunbathed melodramas. I'm sure. I'm curious if those are if either of those are references that uh like that resonate for you, or you think this film is too small and I'm comparing it with giants.
1: Well, anytime you have that a st- style that that is that cold and formalist, that you know you get those Kubrick. Associations. I mean, you could talk about Michael Haneke being that way too, somebody who's just going to kind of put you at a very chilly remove. Though I will say that this film is more engaged with its characters' emotions than a Kubrick film would be. A Kubrick film would be wholly distant, and the characters tend to be folded into conceits in a way that isn't quite what this is doing
3: that's true and cirque would be in a way warmer than this oh you know? much so more no, more I mean, I mean,
1: because cirque is all about color and warmth i mean the use of color here is quite striking i mean mm-hmm. i again I, I found this film to be utterly riveting from start to finish, and it had a lot to do with the look of the film and the control of it, and just it, it was clean and had a real bite to it. Well, um, and, but... and
2: that house. like, I mean, I kept thinking of Parasite just in terms of how that house is a character in this movie, and first of all, just the use of windows and glass in the house, I feel, are just really tied up thematically in what Hunter is is going through and sort of her inability to find... Any space for herself in this family and this home, and as the movie progresses, her inability to hide from the observation, the constant observation they have her under. But it also just adds so much striking visuals to the proceedings, having these floor to ceiling windows everywhere, this giant balcony that appears to have no railing because it's a glass wall that you can barely see, and just the glass there's mirror there's a lot of mirrors too, maybe mirrors are maybe a little more unsafe than here, but just like <laughs> there's something about just large. Panels of glass and and uh, damaged women that go together really well. I think I also think of the Virgin suicides. That's another uh, one where you you get a lot of sort of window imagery. And I think maybe that ties into the chilliness that uh, that we're reading in the cinematography. It's funny, I just rewatched the end of Tangled today
3: for something I was doing. Mm-hmm. And the ultimate breakdown of Mother Gothel involves a shattered mirror and like yeah. seeing her shattered visage in the shattered mirror. And it definitely has me thinking about like how many times in films we've seen like that particular type of image, mm-hmm. like a woman confronting herself in a broken mirror as like emblematic of how she's lost her beauty in some way. Mm the idea that both of these uh, movies sort of explore that i mean it it all comes down to exploring different kinds of again archetypes and fantasies and expectations for women and the expectation for women is that they're going to be vain that they're going to be caught up in what they look like in the mirror that they're going to be caught up in preserving their youth and beauty and and horrified if or when it fades so of course like that engagement with glass is going to be a big thing in in cinema especially around an industry that is so obsessed with youth and beauty itself.
1: Uh, this is unrelated, but it's something I wanted to kind of get into a little bit with this film is that, you know, I and I guess we'll compare it to with safe in this respect, but I did like that Hunter hasn't completely buried her spirit in entering into this relationship. I mean she's tried and there's a pressure to do so, but there are moments in the film where she just like goes off. You know? And I, I like that. I'd be mean, like the scene of the party where her husband has let people know you know, what she's been doing, she's so humiliated by that knowledge and she lets him have it. In the scene later in the film when she, you know, confronts her biological father, I liked seeing that side of her. It's almost like she's tried and, you know, maybe 90% succeeded to committing to this marriage and what's expected to her and the role she's expected to play, but there's still that other 10% and it kind of comes out occasionally.
3: And it's very much a class issue, isn't it? She, There's a sense that she's married well above her station mm-hmm. and so she has to pretend to be somebody that she isn't and she can go along with it for a while. The central metaphor here just really interests me because she's already internalized so much, like she's she's already hidden so much of herself inside herself. The idea that she would have to ingest these objects, you know, these damaging objects as kind of a metaphor for the things she's already ingested seems a little backwards to me. You know, it it seems like the metaphor should be things erupting from her since there's so much she's buried inside herself, but maybe that's a harder thing to do. Or maybe it's just that the idea of like taking in sharp objects is just so viscerally upsetting uh, to those of us that don't have this disease that it resonates just like on a, a like a primal horror level.
2: Well, and I think that the baby element, it doesn't change that metaphor, but it does kind of give you a more shallow level. You can read what she's doing out of like just simple self-harm or trying to harm the child inside of her uh, and, and taking control that way. So I think that maybe its power as a metaphor is a little diluted by the fact that you can sort of read it as a more straightforward, her trying to get rid of her baby in some way. I don't read it quite that simply, but I think that that reading is definitely there.
0: Yeah, I never saw her as trying to harm the baby at any point. I thought that was kind of like, I obviously saw the compulsion as an after effect of becoming pregnant, but I didn't necessarily see that as sort of trying to induce an abortion through other means.
2: See, I think the sequence that made me kind of have that reading is uh oh it's right after she swallows the thumbtack and she is sort of like groaning and and writhing on the floor and then like she comes out of it and then the very next shot is her looking in the mirror and kind of holding her stomach so that Mm. just sort of like created a direct correlation between her actions and the result or, or lack thereof yeah you may um, be
0: right because certainly obviously the conclusion of the film would support that reading pretty strongly yeah
1: but she seems so pleased with the first experience that she has doing it
2: yeah i, I mean it's not like this is the only way to read what she's doing you yeah. know like I mean,
1: it's almost like an escalation that happens yeah. in terms of like what can i adjust and how <laughs> and survive and that first, what was it, like a marble or something, Yeah. Um. when it comes out, there's almost like this, she seems kind of excited about it.
0: Well, she has her trophy case, too, which I, mm-hmm. I think is, a couple of laughs in it, but one was like, some sort of, what was this, like a little mermaid statue or something? Yeah.
2: <laughs> that was there.
0: It's like, well, I'm glad we didn't visualize that, but thinking about it is uh kind of makes me laugh
2: i want to go back to the whole like sort of horror uh aspect of her actually swallowing these things because like scott and keith i was watching you guys like visibly cringe kind of talking (laughs) about that and i i'm so fascinated by the fact that like me who is the most squeamish of this quartet i was honestly like fine watching her like the only one that like kind of tested my limits was the eyeglass screwdriver Um, but Uh also that they cut away from that but like sort of the body horror element of this didn't really set off any triggers for me which i i'm trying to understand why that is because like literally every other person i've told about this movie or tried to get to watch it with me Uh. was like uh no way (laughs) (laughs) Uh
1: i i you know the sharp stuff is what you know the sure. sharp stuff was a little hard to deal with. The other stuff, not so much. Though there's an interesting kind of um, sub genre of horror that deals with women's bodies. I'm thinking of films like Teeth, or mm. uh, or a film like uh, In My Skin. You know, which has a lot of like really tough sort of skin peeling and uh, other yeah, things. That it's, I can't. It's a, do. Li- it's a little rough, but um,
2: <laughs> thinking of that Black Swan. But, shot. but I mean,
1: they are. But they are all kind of connected in, in terms of like. Being about women and the control or lack of control they have over over their own bodies, the way that kind of you know it Mm -hmm. all becomes kind of a metaphor for that. So this is kind of this this, you could do a uh, little retrospective or something, (laughs) a little series about these movies. If you if you if you did not want to if you did not want many people to be in a theater, I guess. But 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 I I find it fascinating that these movies exist.
2: Uh, before we move away, from it's, I'm just, I want to hear from Tasha. I'm curious if there's like a gender divide as far as the the discomfort with the swallowing objects on just on this panel, not universally. I mean,
3: I'm relatively squeamish about stuff on screen about you know certain levels of gore and mutilation, and this I, there was something about the packaging. I think the fact that it was just so pretty and and candy colored Mm -hmm. and glossy like the contrast between that and the way the ingestions are shot like you you're really given time i also have a very active imagination and uh, Mm -hmm. a fairly empathetic active imagination so it was just very much too easy for me to think about what it would feel like to try to swallow a thumbtack
0: yeah
3: and i was thinking which, which would you
0: want to swallow you want to swallow the blunt end first not the sharp end right
3: Oh yeah, I just like hope it goes down that way mm-hmm. the yeah. whole way. But yeah, you're you're given too much time to think about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I didn't. I don't think I got as flinchy as uh as Scott and Keith about it. But like, I found myself tasting metal at various points mm. throughout the film. Just <laughs> I, I I think it's really effectively put on screen. What you were saying, Genevieve, about the moment where she swallowed the tack and she kind of like looks at herself with satisfaction in the mirror, like with her hand on her stomach. I'd forgotten about that shot. And that does sort of recontextualize a few things for me a little bit in terms of what I was saying about maybe the metaphor should be things coming out of her instead of things going into her. (laughs) And maybe that's a little reverse. But no, you're right. Now that I think about it in that light, she is proud of all of the things she's capable of, of taking into herself and holding there. Like it's about season control of her own body but it's really just kind of like how much can i take it's like like seizing
2: control of her own suffering
3: yeah but also just like showing off how much she can suffer Mm -hmm. like she's suffering in this house in this life in this like all of these constraints on herself and the eradication of her personality but she's kind of proud of like how much she can do it and how she can do it under her own terms and Mm -hmm. like when you when you think about it in that way and in the light of her blow-ups like the the points where she can't contain it anymore she can't keep it in maybe it makes more sense
1: there's also the element here of just intense loneliness and isolation too that kind of comes out in that scene where where her husband's sort of uh buddy or whatever asks her for a hug oh yeah Uh yeah Yeah. (laughs) But her response to that and the way that that original scene takes a very uncomfortable moment and adds a kind of almost a sort of a touching element to it. And then, of course, you get the payoff later to where this is like a thing with this guy and and she doesn't feel quite so special anymore. But just her willingness to kind of entertain this request and then her engagement with it. You know, I mean, it's it's a pretty long embrace um, is pretty revealing of character and revealing of her situation and mental state.
3: Well, there's a lot packed into that in terms of isolation, in terms of mental illness, in terms of the people around her and how they do or don't make her feel special, that would probably be best taken up in conjunction with Todd Haynes' Safe, because that is also a movie that shows the protagonist struggling very much with isolation, with being misunderstood, and with being surrounded by people who want to engage in certain ways that may make her uncomfortable. There's a lot to unpack about the way these two movies speak to each other. So let's get to Connections.
2: There was this guy, kind of this local nutcase, and he would stand on the side of the road into town and he would blow kisses at all the cars passing by. (laughs) And at first he scared me because he had this beard and dirty hair and bad teeth uh, it was like this religious calling or something he had to do. Uh, oh his by business. the way, Richie,
1: uh,
0: before I forget, um how is it left with the Carver people?
1: They send over the contracts and it's being East Side because one of the partners is in Afrikaans something. Like that.
3: Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I wanted to kick off, we didn't, with Safe, uh, really get that deeply into the big central metaphor about AIDS, which fundamentally, it's about a character who has a disease that isn't particularly understood, and that people keep writing off and it's played off in safe as kind of a as Genevieve said a woman's hysteria problem just a, the sort of a fundamental understanding that women are complicated and uh, sometimes they're needy and like sometimes they kind of make things up for attention you you can't take them seriously And it's mirroring the way the AIDS epidemic was originally just kind of written off as like, oh, it's a gay disease. Like, we all know that they're promiscuous and like, they get weird things from having sex with each other. And the administration in particular, like Reagan's America was basically like predicated on the idea of like, well, you know, they're not straight white Christians. So does it really matter? Like, it's probably God's punishment was kind of an almost official decree kind of ignoring the entire epidemic in the in the early eight days of it when it wasn't particularly understood. So it was a very isolating disease. People didn't know entirely how it was spread. And there were a lot of rumors about, you know, toilet seats or casual contact. So it was an extremely isolating disease for people who had it. Uh, like even their nearest and dearest were afraid to get close to them. Which sounds a lot like the current moment we're in Mm -hmm. where a lot of us don't want to be in physical proximity with like even our families, like even some of the people that we're we're closest to. It also sounds like the current moment politically. It also Mm -hmm. sounds like the current moment politically in terms of the Trump administration more or less coming straight out and saying like if the older generation dies, it doesn't really matter because what are they contributing right now? So then you turn around and look at Swallow and this woman who is expressing something like very powerful internally that she can't express any other way because she's sublimated it so much. And her family, the people around her, the people who should be protecting and caring for her are fundamentally not capable of understanding and just very frustrated in a, well, have you tried not being a mutant? Kind of way. <laughs> you know, they they just they really want her to shape up and get with the program because she's an embarrassment, which is something we see less of in safe. There is a little hint of that. Like, why won't you straighten up and fly right? Why won't you get with the program? We had agreed on what this marriage was going to be about. We had agreed on what this relationship was going to be like. And then you had to go and screw it up by getting sick. So I think both of these movies really look pretty deeply both into the isolating effects of illness, the degree to which something that you're experiencing that nobody else can feel and in some cases that nobody else can see until it's forced into their attention can be a, a really hard thing to, to communicate or to share with other people. In the kind of way that sharing lightens burdens. Both of these movies are about women with burdens that they try to share with people who just really aren't
2: down for that sharing. And it it leaves them very alone. I think you summarized it really well there, Tasha. I'll point out that sort of a, a point of contrast that I think sort of underlines the broader connection here is that in Swallow, there is a name and a diagnosis syndrome for what she has, pica. Whereas in safe, it's sort of this vague, not really diagnosed environmental illness. There's some sort of speculation of that it might be an actual thing, but it's not given a, a name and a diagnosis the way that she is given and, and swallow. But even with that, there is no real greater understanding on the part of people who aren't her because they are outside of her body. You know, they don't, they are not sharing that physical experience in the same way that the people in Carol's life have no capacity for sharing the physical experience that is almost certainly linked to her emotional experience. And that link is sort of where the the isolation comes from, because you can't know that about someone else. You You can't know what is happening inside them on either an emotional or physical level, unless they speak to it. And even then, that is not a guarantee that they will be able to understand or process what you're going through.
3: Yeah, there's a degree to which a like a physical wound, like if you have a broken arm, other people can see it. If you have a mental illness, other people can't see it. They can see the the behaviors, but it's so easy, especially in an environment that sees illness as a weakness, and that just perpetually wants to excuse illness, well, it's your fault because it's your fault because you drink too much. It's your fault because you went to the wrong place at the wrong time. It's your fault because you don't Your fault because you're not grateful enough. It's your fault because you're not grateful enough. It's your fault for, for whatever reason, you know, because that whistling past the grave thing tells us, well, your problem is that you're not whatever, Therefore, I can't get it it's it's just it's a mm-hmm. it's a survival mechanism, and it's much easier to push off something you can't see like uh, yeah, okay, I understand that you have depression, but couldn't you just like get off the couch and and do more? <laughs> yes, I understand that you feel this urge to cut yourself, but couldn't you just not cut yourself <laughs> like whatever the excuse is with a mental illness here we have two people that are being written off as suffering mental illness because people can't see their problems
1: yeah and it's a, it's such a as you said not a broken arm it's such a this vague and inexplicable thing and it's just you, you know you can uh, in the impression that you get from everyone around the women in safe and swallow is like just get over it can't you just like get past this i mean i guess with safe she does actually get to a place where other people are having these experiences or similar experiences and there there are people there who are trying to to help in whatever weird californian way um mm-hmm. they can but initially it's just maddening for people that they even have to deal with this thing that the sufferer of this illness is at fault for not just getting over because why is this a problem why you know why are if you're carol and and safe why can't you just live you're a wealthy person why can't you just go on doing what you're doing before what is this thing that you suddenly have that nobody else has and in Swallow, it's like, stop swallowing that stuff.
0: At least Carol has symptoms that are recognizable as illness, like whether or not they're psychosomatic. But for Hunter and Swallow, it's not quite so easy to, for people to uh, see it as a relatable condition.
3: Well, both women do end up in the hospital under circumstances that make it impossible to ignore or not see their problems anymore, and I think in both cases the familial reaction to that is in part like alarm and anger because it, it's some some of it's the anger of like how how did you let this get so far. Why didn't I see this before? Why didn't I take it seriously before? And again, that's something we're seeing in the current administration uh, with the sudden, like, oh yeah, uh, this is serious, and we took it seriously all along, even though we're openly on the record as having not taken it seriously as of a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just that sense of this crept up on me. How can it be not my fault? And in both films, we see the family is kind of reacting with the anger of people who are being confronted with something that they should have seen and didn't like that. That conversion of like guilt and fear
2: into anger is a very common thing. And, and we see it a lot in both of these films. Real quick, before we move away from this connection and specifically the AIDS metaphor component of safe, I just I do want to briefly talk about the scene in Safe where Carol uh, goes to see her friend who's, whose brother has died. And the cause of death is never explicitly spoken, but it's very clear in what they are not saying how he died. So without that scene, it's easier to dismiss the AIDS metaphor as just like a, something you can put upon this film, if you so choose. But I think that scene makes it very, very clear that this was uh, front and center in Haynes's mind. Uh, yeah, there's a couple other film. like
0: offhand references too, but the, the the way that's you know presented as sort of like. They've had this conversation before about other people where it's like, was he, they won't say what he was, and was it, and they won't say AIDS. But yeah, it felt very familiar the way they talked about this in in that scene.
3: That seems particularly interesting in a way because it's it's once again an example of Carol not finishing her sentences, not presenting ideas, not completing thoughts, but it's also an indication of how squeamish she is. She doesn't want to bring up something uncomfortable and ugly. She does. She doesn't want to insert it into this conversation. And her friend pretty much goes directly from "My d- brother died of an unknown illness that might be AIDS," but we're not going to talk about that. Too. Have you seen the den? <laughs> <laughs> so so when you when you have that, like, foundation of we're not going to talk about uncomfortable things, then when you immediately go from there into this ugly disease that, that slowly strips, like, weight off of her body and the luster out of her, her face, like, of course everybody's going to be uncomfortable. We've already established this is an environment where we don't like to talk about uncomfortable things.
1: Another connection I wanted to bring up was therapy, because therapy plays an important role. In a similar role in both safe and swallow and in, in safe uh carol ends up going to uh renwood and goes through whatever new agey type of program that they've set up there and then in swallow hunter is taken to a therapist and it, <laughs> she and the therapist seem to Ooh. have a yeah i know it's rough right yeah. they, they seem to have quite a good relationship and a productive one to an extent, I feel like that the therapist is getting Hunter to talk about some really difficult and important things, but of course, it's all undermined by Hunter discovering that the therapist is collecting this information, you know, and telling it to her <laughs> spouse and her her in laws and betraying that relationship, which is you know obviously is is about as big of <laughs> violation of of uh, as you can get in terms of in terms of good therapy. As for safe though, it's just.
2: Well, it, it's it's in the context of, like, self-help lingo, and it puts the onus on the person suffering the illness to take accountability for how they're feeling. But also in Safe, before she goes to Renwood, there is sort of a, uh, there is a scene where she goes, is it just one scene where she goes to see a therapist, or does she see him twice? Um, I just remember the one. Yeah. yeah. Just one. Yeah. And what's interesting about that scene is, like, how little he is able to draw out of carol like i i think th- that scene is one of the ones that really sort of contributes to my feeling that she is just sort of an empty vessel and it's certainly linked to her inability to express anything about her her inner life and the the isolation that results from that but that sequence though like that may be the most kubrickian thing in the entire film mm. The way
3: he's shot is like this tiny little figure lost in the space of like his desk and the wall behind him, and like the just the coldly clinical way he just sits and looks at her to the point where she says, "Aren't aren't you supposed to ask more questions?" And he's like, yeah. "No." <laughs> like he that that is that's like a Kubricking gag right there. It's it's actually kind of a laugh moment of just how fundamentally unsympathetic and difficult to talk to and un, seemingly uncaring he is. It's also, I think, interesting that like we could talk a lot, and uh, I'm going to get out of the way and, and hope that you do about whether the therapy at the camp is in any way useful or sympathetic. Mm-hmm. But if nothing else, it's something that she embraces. The earlier therapy, she and her husband both, when they're told maybe you should see a um specialist, like react to the idea like. A shrink as if the doctor had like thrown a scorpion on them it's mm. very obviously a, a shameful and grotesque thing to them whereas today uh, like people i can't think of the last time i had a day at work without somebody saying oh my therapist said or oh i gotta go now i've gotta mm. go see my therapist or whatever like yeah. <laughs> it's not only more casual than i'm getting a manicure it's almost presented as though like if you don't have a therapist like what are you even doing with your life you're not taking yourself seriously, are you? I think it's a
1: crucial point though in both in swallow and with this and with this therapist that she sees before. Um, going to renwood that those therapists are marked as her family's people you know not not Mm. not someone who's there for them uh that's that's there for the the for carol or for hunter but but who are presenting themselves as part as the solution but are in fact you know part of the the group of people who can't be trusted and who are but who don't have her best interests in in mind who are not interested in hearing what she has to say you know they're not her people so at least at the very least with renwood there's a sense like that that she's entering into this program that that is i think i mean there is an interest in helping her as much as as much as they can i think that they, i just i don't think they, they're capable of it and there's a there is an exploitative element too of just of this guru who's making a, a ton of money and also kind of this thing where she signed up to this program the way people at health clubs get into things get into fad diets get into things that they can kind of that they see on the on the billboard or they see you know on on television commercials and feel like that's vaguely that's the solution to whatever it is that's bothering them and she takes that all the way by going to renwood
2: the therapy she receives at renwood is also sort of a place the aids metaphor plays out and i'm just going to quote directly from dennis Lim's criterion essay Safe here because it's very very smart and i could not say it better so i'm just going to read it Uh, He writes, where the doctors question the existence of her sickness, Renwood affirms it and in doing so validates her, but it also instills a poisonously mixed message. Even if the chemicals are making her sick, the cause lies within. The cure is a regimen of self-improvement that sounds an awful lot like self-blame. Quote, the only person who can make you sick is you, Peter tells his charges, more or less quoting from The AIDS Book, Creating a Positive Approach, one of several bestsellers by New Age Empress Louise Hay, who made a fortune in the 80s and 90s stumping for positive thinking as a miracle panacea
3: whoa Woof. that's yeah.
1: amazing yeah it slim, is. that's man. a that's dude. a good good comparison
3: good. yeah at the same time that oh god that style of therapy is so destructive i had a close friend who was molested as a child and it she had left her with ptsd and and trust issues and all sorts of things and she went to see a new therapist and they led off with a questionnaire uh that started like, why did you let the person into your life mm. to hurt you? And she <laughs> put it down and walked out the door. I mean, I-, I think that's the only proper way to deal with that kind of like reflexive self-blame. There is a degree to which you don't want to claim that all of your problems are other people's fault, but the only you can make yourself sick is <laughs> it's just it's such a a terrible message
2: to be giving people who are affected by external forces, you know, whether that's bacteria or abusers. Yeah, well, and also a very strange assertion to make in the context of a quote, environmental illness, you know, like there's all this messaging that it's it's fumes and the the world around us, but the only real solution is you just getting the hell over it. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's it's another place where the movie inverts itself because the first half of the movie is everything makes me sick, and the second half of the movie is only you make you sick, too. Yeah, yeah I'd really love to like kind of go through and find all the parallels between the two halves of the movie at some point. Does anyone want to pay me to do that? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> for
2: Hire. We've uh, kind of mentioned it, but I I think one of the most gasp-worthy moments in Swallow is when uh, her hunter's therapist tattles on her to uh, her husband, and I don't know about anyone else, but the that scene made me think strongly of Mad Men. Uh, I think it's season either mm-hmm. season one or two. There's a, a similar storyline involving uh, Betty and Don Draper. And that made me kind of think about the way that Swallow is sort of tapping into a much earlier era of domesticity. Hunter is... Repeatedly sort of uh, portrayed, at least in the beginning, as sort of that classic 1950s housewife, like we said, vacuuming in heels, but that portrayal sort of evolves over the course of the film, as does Carol's sort of housewife persona. You know, it, it drops away as she gets more ill. But I think both of these films are interested in the archetype of the housewife and the, the husband and the gender roles therein.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, to me, that the housewife element part partially feeds into something that you specifically mentioned earlier, that, that sense of... This is happening to you because you're not grateful enough. Mm. I feel like Hunter and Carol are both kind of placed in this very passive, like, 50s housewife situation where because their only responsibility is to to care for a house and – in a sort of abstracted way, care for a child, you know, one of them being pregnant. So there's like a the specter of future motherhood. One of them has a stepchild that's her husband's a child that isn't her biological child. And she has both almost them, no connection
2: to. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Al- although he does refer to her as the boy's mother, like late in the film, mm. just in a very scolding, like, don't talk that way to your mother kind of way. But both of these women are fundamentally removed from motherhood, You know, one of them hasn't had a child yet. One of them doesn't have a child, period, and isn't the mother of the child who's there. So both of them are outside that part of the archetype. But both of them have kind of been like gifted this big lavish house that they're expected to take care of. And I think both of them in the same sort of way have been like poisonously gifted, toxically gifted with this image of who they are and how they're supposed to behave. And I think in both cases, their husbands are just kind of angry, like why you have it all. You know, you have everything that a 50s housewife is supposed to want. You have the latest appliances and uh, the the fanciest furniture and a glass balcony. Who could want anything more? And you can Why decorate you it more? any
2: way you want to. You can get <laughs> sky blue drapes or a teal couch. <laughs> or a black couch that doesn't go with anything we own.
0: With, with Swallow, it almost seems like she's an acquisition that's malfunctioning. You know, like oh, she's, yeah. a, she's an appliance that's not working out the way they hoped hope
3: she would. She's a black couch when they wanted a teal couch. Well, but yeah, but, yeah
0: exactly. They, but I mean, like you know, because she's from a different class and doesn't have a family. I Kind of touched on that already, but but it almost makes her chattel in a way.
1: You know, you think about how these women get you know everything they want, right, or whatever we, they're supposed to want. This life of wealth and you know material goods, but they're also assigned with making everything perfect and clean. It, it's a very narrow thing. I mean, if, you know, if you think about being you know rich you you can actually think about screwing some things up messing up some hotel rooms (laughs) you know living like living like a emperor or something and because who cares you got all this money you can do whatever you want that's not what the daily lives of these characters are like the daily lives are like i have to keep absolutely everything perfect i have to walk the line here and and um it's an intense pressure that they're under to perform this role every day and to do it perfectly. And they sort of crack under that pressure.
3: And I think part of the process of cracking under that pressure, as it is in so many films that take this up as a theme is not that it's too much pressure, that it's, that it's too much to handle, like running a house. It's that it's not enough. It's not enough Mm -hmm. to live for. Well, I thought of you, Scott, when
0: uh, her addiction to like some sort of candy crush game uh, became obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciated
1: that.
2: Tasha, you spoke a little about uh, costuming of Carol in, in the first half, and I uh, just want to kind of use this connection to note the costuming of Hunter and in, in Swallow. I'm still just really taken with that scene of her vacuuming in heels, which is just the clothing she's wearing is such like a throwback silhouette, not just the kitten heels, but the sort of voluminous skirt. And then later in the film, I was really struck by after she swallows the battery, um, which is sort of like when she's getting into the groove of, of, of the pika, you know, it's she's like more matter of fact about it. And like after she does that, the very next scene which comes shortly after the vacuum and heels scene. She's cleaning again, but now she's wearing pants and is barefoot. There's a casualness about her in her own home that there wasn't when she was like wrestling with the vacuum and heels. I'm sure there's more moment, costuming moments like that throughout the film. And of course, she is costumed very differently once she escapes the house at the end but i think again in the context of sort of the housewife archetype that's an an interesting change over to note yeah and it's an interesting change that is conveyed
3: entirely through clothing mm-hmm. and uh like physical physical behavior physical carriage as opposed to like being explained or spelled out
0: yeah i mean we could t- we should talk about also how each of these kind of is set in a particular time and place you know i feel like safe setting in 1987 is intentional for uh you know for for several reasons it's sort of the height of a sort of 80s prosperity you know it's it's, it's the year of the market crash but i don't think this this is this is sort of before that uh, but also sort of the height of mainstream indifference to aids as as the crisis got Worse and worse, and and I think that's kind of just humming around as as background noise. And also gives a chance for Haynes to to spotlight some truly horrible '80s fashions and uh, (laughs) jazzercise classes. Um, But you know, Swallow almost feels like you know you know Candy Crush like apps aside, it 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 almost feels like it could be set in any era, mm-hmm. uh, any recent era. it almost feels like impossible to agree that, that the happy homemaker uh, stereotype has, you know, remained so unchanged from the 50s to the present. You know, do you feel like that kind of throwback, you know, beyond being like sort of an easy reference point, is, is there some sort of other reason that that's included in Swallow? And am, am I right about why, say, it's set in the 80s? Like, I've read pieces about the film that don't mention the fact that it's set in the 80s at all. And I've actually read, I forget who wrote it, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't called them out anyway, but someone who referred to it as, as as a film about the '90s or set in the '90s, and that specificity is there for a reason.
3: It almost feels to me with swallow like the lack of specificity is meant either to tap into that old archetype while still considering it like a bit of a fantasy. I mean, to some degree, it's meant to communicate the conservative nature of her husband and and family, like the fact that they basically want to keep her around as a broodmare the fact that they're tapping into her therapist uh, to get information about what's going on in her head the fact that she's kind of a kept woman the fact that she's this is an american movie where like the upper class lower class uh breach is almost at least presented as almost unimaginable and very important like all of these things seem like they come from an earlier era. So I think kind of taking it out of a specific era is meant to some degree to enable these things to tap into kind of some older ideas and maybe to some degree to also take it just a little bit into the realm of fantasy. I
1: think, I mean, I don't know. I think this type of family exists. I mean, it, you know, this is old money. Her husband hasn't earned. <laughs> his position as the youngest whatever in this company he's there because of nepotism and because he's just he's been he's inherited this wealth and i think that world is so insular and it's insular because it's you're protected by money and you know if whatever changes are happening in the outside world in terms of gender roles or in terms of anything you can insulate yourself with that when you're dealing with money and if you're come from outside of that realm and into that realm that's the the tacit sacrifice that you're having to make of just of, you're going to you're going to leave all of this um uh, all all this modernity behind and enter into a world in which certain things are expected that are very old-fashioned or would seem very old-fashioned under normal circumstances
0: i mean maybe you know we've kind of been making light of it but maybe that's part of why she clings to those those uh, uh smartphone games you know it is something you know mm. that that is modern
3: I had not considered the degree to which it feels like in Swallow, Hunter is moving from a kind of a a fantasy of the past, like a kind of enforced fantasy of the past into the modern future to to the point where she aborts her child, like in the bathroom stall at a mall, effectively, like it it feels like a very modern setting to the point where it's kind of like crass and and ordinary and, and even grubby but it still feels much more modern than where she came from. Whereas in Safe, Carol moves from uh, like a very modern 80s setting, like a very polished up to the moment version of what a house should look like to this much more like old school rundown uh, setting that feels like like something out of the 60s, like feels like a very old school camp setting. Like they're moving in opposite directions in order to find liberation.
2: You know, a more rundown old school setting that is nevertheless overlooked by a mansion on a hill, mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which exists, I think, very much to to draw out that contrast. And yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add uh, to what you guys have said. But uh, kind of as Scott was getting at, I think sort of the timelessness of Swallow is inextricably linked to its depiction of privilege, and the way you are able, given enough money and resources to insulate yourself from the world. And I think there's that comes through in the character of Lue, who we uh, haven't really talked about, the, the man who is... Brought into kind of watch over <laughs> hunter from from, was, from was it C- Bo- Syria Syria yes I was gonna say Belarus but uh, yeah, yeah Damascus yeah said. yeah and yeah he he's uh, you know she asks him why he left and she says he just says war you know and <laughs> but but then later he's he's like you know if you were in war you would not have this problem of the mind no time for mind problems when you're being shot at and there's sort of the the implication there the, the privilege that she has that she has been afforded is what is making her sick yeah
1: he he's interesting though because i think he kind of comes around to understanding her a little bit better yeah, i mean he, I he think helps her a, escape a, he helps her escape but i mean like sure. there's that there's that thing of that dismissive tone of just like i had to leave you know a war zone like what possible problem could you have that is worse than that and then but i think then he rec- he kind of sees her a little bit mm. and identifies with her in a way or, 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 rec- or at least is able to sympathize with her issues in a way that nobody else around her can um and so yeah and so he escape it's kind of a contrived character it's a little weird uh yeah. but I, I don't know kind of effect- affecting in its way
3: I found him really charming and funny, and uh, there were times when I thought, "Could this movie just be about him instead?" (laughs) Uh, Which is a weird reaction because obviously, he created
1: his job. <laughs> he's,
3: not, he, he's not, but he falls then, he,
1: he falls asleep underneath the bed,
3: <laughs> much in the same way that uh she did not necessarily set out to become uh, a trophy and a token, he didn't necessarily set out to become a thug accoutrement uh to a bunch of rich spoiled people, yeah, and I think the fact that he's able to connect to her and help her find her way out is kind of an indication. I think we, we always accept his humanity. Like like pretty much from the moment he begins to speak, we accept his humanity. And him deciding that her problems are real and that these people are awful and she deserves to escape them is a way of confirming her humanity, confirming that her problems aren't just mental. They, they are actually real and relatable.
1: Yeah, it was nice. And I did like the confrontation that she has uh, with her biological father at the end. As much as I kind of resented that backstory needing to be explained in any way, shape, or form. The scene itself was pretty powerful, I it's thought. It's a good
0: scene, yeah. I mean, Deniso Harris is a good actor. Controversial sure, statement. Yeah.
3: yeah, we really didn't discuss that sequence when we were just generally discussing Swallow. And it's an interesting one because I, I think on some level it's maybe a little clumsy and a little fantastical, but it does immediately just raise the question, like it raises a lot of questions about how long... Is too long, like to suffer for something that you did and how long, like where does the statute of limitations come in for something if you didn't suffer, if you weren't caught, if you weren't punished? He like, he very clearly thinks that like that was in the past and he's changed and he's a different person. But the things that he did that he wasn't punished for, that he, he has decided that it's okay for him to move on from. Are things that are still affecting her and that affected her entire life. So, like, I almost felt like that question, that problem, was too big for what feels like a tiny little movie on some levels.
1: Yeah, I'd like to see that movie. <laughs> I would. I would. There, there does seem like a, there's another movie in that scene, or maybe that's the climax to a to another movie because it felt the scene itself was very persuasive to me in terms of both of their perspectives on on the issue and like where is this going to go what is your expectation here all that felt very real and uh, made me want to know more
3: yeah both of these I guess fundamentally movies about uh, women in isolation finding people who can sympathize with them finding people who understand them for better or for worse uh, in very different ways to very different ends but these movies do have a lot of things in common with each other Safe is streaming on the Criterion channel and it's available on Criterion DVD and Blu ray. Swallow is on VOD and it can be rented at Amazon, Apple, YouTube, and other streaming platforms. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately?
2: Well, I'm going to start with a sort of minor recommendation born of some very sad news that we got just a couple hours before recording this podcast, which is that Adam Schlesinger has passed away due to complications from COVID-19. I think we're all pretty bummed out about that. And the remembrances are certainly going to be forthcoming. But just sort of off the top of my head as we're recording this, I want to use this as an opportunity to note that Schlesinger wrote the title song of the Tom Hanks film, That Thing You Do. And that film does not work without that song. Uh, I recently rewatched it with some friends. I have a lot of affection for that movie. I think it holds up in uh, many ways. But most especially in the song that thing you do
0: i watched it recently too and, and and unrelated to this and, and you know kind of at my twitter feed i think a lot of people are watching it tonight uh, which yeah. is sweet uh, i think it's a really good movie well, one thing I, I about the movie is like if that song weren't so good it would be unbearable because mm-hmm. they play they play it every two minutes <laughs> know, they or really whatever. Do. <laughs> uh, yeah did you watch the long longer cut
2: don't know. I watched it's, it, I watched know it, it with you, friends. So I think you'd well, know it if
0: you watch it because it's quite a bit longer. It's like 40 or 45 minutes longer. Uh, oh. It's got some oh interesting stuff. I don't, I don't think it's better than, than the theatrical yeah, version, but enjoy. if you've seen the movie uh, a few times, it's kind of interesting to see it fleshed out. Well,
2: I, I can only assume that you hear the song at least 15 to 20 more times in those extra 45 <laughs> minutes, so uh, yeah. maybe, maybe that in itself is a recommendation to check it out. But um, for my uh, actual uh, recommendation, I'm going to talk... About about a 2018 film that I caught up with only recently, uh, which I'm a little ashamed to admit, given that it won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature that year. But since Free Solo has been front and center on my Disney Plus front page for months now, and given that the title has taken on a new ironic tinge in our socially distanced times, uh, I decided to check it out this past weekend. Uh, I remember when Free Solo was in theaters, specifically when it was doing a brief IMAX run, there was a lot of chatter about what a visceral and almost most physically uncomfortable viewing experience it was. Uh, And while I can't speak to that, I can confirm that it is uh, extremely engaging, even on a smaller screen, uh, in large part because the visuals, while spectacular, are, I would argue, not the most compelling element of the film. Uh, If you're unaware, Free Solo is named for an extreme form of rock climbing, wherein the climber scales rock or ice faces alone without ropes or protective gear. It's as dangerous and frequently deadly as it sounds, and the documentary notes that less than 1% of climbers are Free Solo. But the film is more specifically a character study of climber Alex Honnold, who holds many records for free solo climbing, including being the only person to free solo the Yellowstone formation known as El Capitan, which he did in 2017. Uh, That ascent is the organizing principle of free solo, which profiles Honnold by way of his preparation for this climb, and in the process reveals a very singular and strange personality. Uh, but there's this fascinating corollary story involving the film's co-director, Jimmy Chin, who, along with a camera crew of other experienced climbers, is tasked with capturing this high-stakes climb that, by its very nature, is meant to be accomplished alone, without spectators or assistants. uh It raises all these questions about the role of the filmmaker and the relationship between subject and documentarian, uh, all wrapped up in literal life-or-death stakes. Uh, Those stakes are admittedly undermined a bit by the fact that we know Honnold eventually achieves what he set out to do, uh, but that doesn't really change the moral bramble that arises out of this project. Just on its surface, it's a nice bit of sort of outdoor adventure escapism that, you know, might be appealing during these times, but there is this deeper level to it that I think makes it a really fascinating study of the documentary form, and I would recommend checking out Free Solo if you have Disney+, Plus, where it is free to stream via the National Geographic channel.
1: Yeah, I, I really like free solo a lot, and then of course, it has that relationship in mm-hmm. it too with between Honald and his, and his girlfriend. It's very serious, and then it's like okay, the stakes get a whole lot higher. You know, I mean he he talks about how difficult it is to, <laughs> to date when you're a free solo climber because you know any one one slip and you're done. You're you have you're dead, <laughs> and uh, and that's a very hard thing for uh, for a romantic partner uh, to uh, accept. And I found that relationship fascinating. I found it fascinating. The mix in honald of recklessness, a certain recklessness that you 'd have to have in order to do this because it's it 's just such a crazy, crazy thing to do, but also discipline those two mm-hmm. things never don 't come together very often right? right somebody who who can plan as meticulously as him is, is to and to know when the right time is to go when when to pull back that's really hard for somebody who's also going to be crazy enough to do this to manage so that's interesting and then the other thing <laughs> i wanted to, to mention is that i got to talk to those three the the director mm. the two directors who did Meru as well i don't know if you ever saw that yeah. um, that's more about jimmy chan and that's quite good too mm-hmm. um and um those two and then and ox Honold, i got to meet them in, in person and, and oh. Honold has the most unforgettable handshake <laughs> that you've ever <laughs> given someone because his hands are just they're not like regular hands yeah. They're because they, they, they're very supple and like the, the the tips of his fingers are like broad I mean, it's almost like chimp-like these fingers because he's having to grip the rock. They're and, like lizards, and, and, yeah, they really yeah. like exactly. Imp- that's even better. Yes, just like they're like he's got like lizard fingers, um, <laughs> and, he's, and he's and he's 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 so he's really affable, and they're all really pretty. Like good grief, like these are like three, three <laughs> I'm like I'm like in the middle of a film festival, not not really uh, at my best, and I'm I'm here with there with three just uh, you know extraordinary. Spec- human <laughs> specimens uh, talking, but anyway. So I've hijacked your free solo thing, but other, but I think it's really great, and we're seeing. <laughs>
2: All right, well, well Scott, uh give us your recommendation so I can hijack that.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay, well my recommendation is uh for a film called Skate Kitchen. I was doing a piece that should be up for the New York Times on, you know, sort of underseen indie films that are streaming on Hulu, and Skate Kitchen was one that is directed by Crystal Moselle, who had done The Wolf Pack, mm-hmm. uh, that was her her documentary and that and this is her uh, making a, a, a fiction film with documentary elements. Um, it, it is about who's a very talented skateboarder. Uh, she's from Long Island. She comes into the city to, to skate. She falls in with this sort of multiracial group of boarders, I guess. Skateboarders, they bond, and, and that becomes her kind of family. And it's done in this very loose, improv- semi-improvisational style. It features a lot of really captured moments it's a movie that i think you you would compare to something like kids but and then that it's a it's very street oriented and uh naturalistic um but it has a much more it's it's not a provocation it's really just about evoking a scene and it does it so well i think it's it's a film that really got slept on when it came out but i think it's a it's a quite a gorgeous hybrid of the best parts of fiction and documentary just it, it feels like um it just has a vibrancy to it and it's it's so much about the scene and the narrative elements of it are thin but i think properly so i i thought it was a nice movie and and something that uh was something a film that i think should have been talked about a little bit more um, and it's my fault, because I wasn't there to talk about it or advocate for it until now. But it is on Hulu, so you can stream it for free and, and uh, if, you, if you subscribe. And uh, I'd highly recommend it. I thought it was quite good.
2: Well, Scott, uh, I'm about to blow your mind. Are you aware of Betty? Betty. It's, a, no. it's an upcoming HBO series from Crystal Moselle based on Skate <gasps> Kitchen. It includes the stars of Skate Kitchen no reprising way. their roles. It's going to be well, what, a, a... When's it going to happen? Uh, I believe May... Late. It, oh it's, it's supposed to premiere. I, I think it just got a premiere date, but it was it was announced a, a few a few months ago. Oh, and good. Yeah, I'm good.
1: good. I, I'm glad. Yeah, she's super talented. Uh, um, yeah, that's really good to hear. Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm on board. Uh, Keith, what about you?
0: Well, I've similarly been working on. Uh, my pick, similarly, comes from a piece I've been working on. I've been watching uh, a bunch of baseball movies for a piece for for Vulture, which is a bittersweet experience right now because I was looking forward to the baseball season starting, and uh, you yeah, know we're not uh, we're not getting baseball uh, anytime soon. But it's allowed me to watch or rewatch a number of great movies and some lousy ones. But I won't talk about those. Uh, the the big revelation for me was a movie I had not seen in a long time. It's uh, John Sayles' Eight Men Out, released in nineteen eighty eight, which covers the uh, 1990s. Black Sox scandal in which ended with eight White Sox players being banned from Baseball for Life for throwing the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds at the behest of gamblers who bribed them. Um, Although one thing the film does is kind of gets into some of the ambiguities of it. Like it doesn't let the players off the hook but uh, Buck Weaver, uh, and certainly his complicity seems to be a, 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 a still an open question that the film comes down on his side. And it, What it really does is, what makes it a John Sayles film is it really is interested in the working conditions and the exploitation of the ownership uh, that sort of led to some really un- uncomfortable situations where, no, it wasn't right to take this money, but if you are Eddie uh, Seacoat, I think I pronounced that correctly, as played by David Strathairn, who's a 35-year-old pitcher at the end of his career who was just cheated out of a bonus by uh, by the owner of the team, uh, then, you know, it might look kind of appealing and at least might also look like the, the option you have to pursue just to protect your family. So uh, it's a really rich movie. It's a beautifully, I mean, wonderfully cast. I mean, John Cusack and, uh, you know, the cast includes John Cusack. John Mahoney is especially good. Uh, Charlie Sheen, David Strathairn, uh, young Michael Rooker. Um, Bill Irwin and others. Uh, and it's also like I think sales doesn't always get enough credit as someone who can make a stylish film that's, you know, got stuff going on that you want to look at. I mean, it helps, I think, that he has Robert Richardson – um, long term, uh, a long time. Uh, it's Martin Scorsese and Martin quintarantino Tarantino, cinematographer working with him here. But it, it's a great looking movie, and it's got like really nice touches. Where Sales himself plays a journalist alongside uh, T- Studs St- Terkel, uh, who, if you're mm-hmm. going to get someone to play a uh, uh, you know a wizened, deeply experienced Chicago journalist, why not just get Studs St- Terkel to play <laughs> that, to that character? <laughs> um, you know, I hadn't seen it in a long time. It's I remember liking it, but I think it's a really excellent movie, and it's also streaming. Uh, you know, the usual places, but stream for free on a lot of, a lot of services like, uh, Voodoo, it's free with ads, uh, Tubi, Pluto, uh, my, my beloved uh, Pluto TV, it's, it's, uh, there. So, uh, lots of ways to check it out. I'd highly recommend it.
1: Oh, I, I mean, I'm a fan of, I'm a big fan of this movie too. And it was kind of a swing for the fences for sales, right? I mean, I see he- what you did there. <laughs> oh, I didn't even see what I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, swing for the fences. Um, It was, in terms of just having that cast doing a big period piece, he didn't really... Make films this relatively large? Well, I mean, um, he,
0: he made three big ones in a row. He made this was his follow up to Mate One, which is a pretty sweeping film. And after this, he did City of Hope, which is sort of those underrated. are all
1: indie. Those are all pretty, pretty like indie scaled films. Nah, that's right? true.
0: I mean, this definitely had star power, and it's yeah. some, you know some money behind him with this
3: one. It's a good one, though. Tasha, how about you? I didn't really set out to make a connection between the films that we're doing uh, this time around and my recommendation. I did something i don't do very often these days uh which is i sat down and watched a film in order to just sit down and watch a film like something <laughs> yeah. not in any way tied to anything that i was covering or, or writing about and that was the original candy man jordan peele has an upcoming remake reboot uh it's not entirely uh clear to me uh version of candy man coming up and it's just, it's been on my to watch list forever. It's, it's one of those seminal horror films that, that people tell you, you have to see to understand the modern genre. And it's something that I've always been interested in because the racial dynamics of it were always described to me as like so bold and innovative. And, uh, you know, it, it made a star out of, uh, Tony Todd, like a, a lingering perpetually on the edge of culture, uh whatever he says we care about it because he's tony todd kind of star out of tony todd mm-hmm. so for all these reasons i sat down and watched it it's streaming on netflix you can find it there if you already have an account and my god what a weird and and innovative and strange movie it's based on a clive barker short story which if you have any passing familiarity with clive barker will kind of give you a like a set point for how strange this film is, because it just doesn't adhere to recognizable horror movie conventions. There's there's a rumor and a, a, a hook-handed slasher and an area of the ghetto that uh, the innocent white lady played by Virginia Madsen dare not go uh, because the the people there are scary because they're people of color and therefore they're criminal. Like that that's that's all just sort of like baked into the premise. And then the film actually starts exploring these ideas and what they mean, like what it means to have your own boogeyman, basically your your own based in the projects boogeyman that doesn't really bother white people, that doesn't really go very far outside of his own little world. And then what happens when that expands larger and it's it feels like a. Jordan Peele movie. You know, it feels like something that's out to be racially provocative and to question a lot of authority. But then the deeper it gets into it, the more it turns into this strange, complicated, like psychosexual exploration of myth in a way that Clive Barker is very familiar with. So just the all of the unusual elements of this film, all of the ways in which it doesn't conform to and like normal expectations for a horror movie fascinated me. the The places that it eventually went fascinated me. The unpredictability of it, and it's also a gaslighting movie. It would also mm. fit in very well with our uh, our gaslighting groups. Like it's it's a story about Virginia Madsen slowly disintegrating under the pressure of these things that she sees and hears and feels that other people can't. So, uh, in terms of connections to to safe specifically, uh, funnily enough. Virginia Madsen's character's uh, untrustworthy slimeball husband is played by Xander Berkeley, mm-hmm. the guy who plays mm-hmm. the kind of untrustworthy slimeball husband of Carol in Safe. And the entire time I was watching Candyman, I was thinking, why is he so familiar? And he, you know, he's he's one of those been in a ton of things kind of guys. But I knew there was some specific reason that I I almost recognized this character. And it turns out it was because of safe, so fun little coincidence. But really, Candyman is a very unusual horror movie, and uh, it just lies somewhere between your your urban legend movies and your Hellraiser movies. And you can really see why Jordan Peele wants to to dig his uh, meat hooks into this movie.
1: <laughs> that score too. You can't. You didn't mention the Philip oh, Glass yeah. score, uh, which I guess Glass went ended up being kind of ashamed that to be associated with the film uh, but i think it's a wonderful uh, score Philip Glass uh, and
0: the music to the fantastic 4 the last fantastic 4 movie yeah. so you know yeah. maybe <laughs> things have changed but
1: but I, but I but i love it i mean the the opening credit sequence alone just is like i i've i watch that periodically just it's an over it's like you know very straight overhead shot of chicago um and cabrini green which is where this takes place and it's got that philip glass score running over it uh, ominously. And it's just, it's kind of awesome the way it sets the tone.
0: It's striking, too, uh, living in Chicago, how much of that Chicago is just gone at this point. And Cabrini Green is shut down. There's still some remnants of it left, I believe, the place where the the building where they had the bonfire out in front, I think that's the the building that was over by the old AV Club office. It was uh, yeah. we first it River North, and and yeah, it's uh it's a it's a real time capsule in that sense.
3: Yeah, and not a time capsule from terribly long ago no. comparatively, but still, it it just it centers on a very changed Chicago. It's like as a as a locational movie as a city playing itself movie it's like an amazing and exciting for a local like how much of it is recognizable and yet how much of it you're seeing that, that you know like those buildings that setting those places aren't there anymore so yeah original Candyman on netflix highly recommended
0: i, w- I will note also though that the building the uh the exteriors for uh, child's play is still uh, intact <laughs>
3: well, that's as good far as chicago landmarks go Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out April 21st and April 28th. Keith, what is coming up next?
0: For our next pairing, we'll be going back to school for two films about malfeasance and corruption in high school and the ways in which high school serves as a microcosm for the world at large. In our next episode, we'll be talking about Election, Alexander Payne's adaptation of a Tom Perrotta novel about the clash between a high school civics teacher, played by Matthew Broderick, and a hard-striving student named Tracy Flick, played by Reese Witherspoon, who desperately wants to become student body president. Then we'll discuss Bad Education, the second film by Thoroughbred's director Corey Finley. Premiering on HBO April 25th, this fact-based film stars Hugh Jackman as a seemingly perfect Long Island school superintendent with a
3: secret, or two. Or maybe even more. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Safe, Swallow, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Oh,
0: I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on, uh, on Twitter at KFIP3000. You can find my writing at a bunch of different places, primarily these days. I'm, I'm at Vulture. I'm at The Ringer. I'm at Fangoria. Um, I'm at uh, TV Guide. I'm at Mel Magazine. I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but uh, yeah. those you, you poke around those sites long enough, you're going to find me. <laughs> Scott, how about you? Uh,
1: well, you can find me at home a lot of the time. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work uh, in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, um, The Guardian, uh, The Ringer, and other fine outlets. Uh, Genevieve, how about you?
2: Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at vulture.com. And you can find me on Twitter, increasingly tweeting through my anxiety these days at Genevieve Goski. <laughs> <Loma>. <laughs> Tasha? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you can find me at polygon.com, where I'm the film and TV
3: editor. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net. Via Twitter at Next picture Pod and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash next picture show. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash next picture show. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, what are you waiting for? We've been asking you for this for years. It, it <laughs> seems like a simple enough thing. Are you are you accusing us of uh, f- like faking this illness in order to get attention? Like, come on, come come subscribe. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominent more listeners and more mental health care while you're there we appreciate every rating and review every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going thanks to Dan the snake jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts please tune in next time
2: oh, swallow. what
0: so you come in. Oh, swallow, what do you swallow?